Hi, I'm Dave Konecki, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment Magazine and Editor of Ag Equipment Intelligence. Today's conversation is a bonus episode in Farm Equipment's How We Did It Ag Entrepreneurs podcast, courtesy of Osmondson Manufacturing, who has sponsored each of the episodes in this unique series, including today's bonus episode. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing the special individuals who have built Lesseter Media into what it is today. They are, of course, Frank, Pam, and Mike Lesseter. Today's conversation is more than a professional assignment for me. It's a personal honor. Since joining Lesseter Media in 2005, the Lesseters have not only made me part of their team at work, they've also made me and my son Paul a part of their family. Over these years, we have been welcomed into the Lesseter family get-togethers from Christmas and Thanksgiving to birthdays and summer get-togethers around Frank and Pam's pool. I can't say how much we appreciate what they have done for us. So let's get started with today's podcast. So you got married early. You got started on a career that eventually brought you to Milwaukee. I edited a Massey Ferguson magazine for three and a half years. Then we went to uh, Illinois, lived in Mount Prospect for three and a half years, and uh, edited a magazine for cattle producers and hog producers. And then we came back to Milwaukee after three and a half years. I had the first three jobs I had, I stayed three and a half years in each one within about 60 days. Don't ask me why, but it's the way it turned out. And we came back in 72 and went to work for Ryman Publications. And I started No-Till Farmer in November of uh, 1972. And most people move up in life. I've had the same job since then, and I'm still (laughs) editor of No-Till Farmer. So did the two of you see ultimately starting your own business at that time? When did that thought come to you? I think we maybe thought about it for a couple years before we actually did it. In the meantime, he had he was made executive vice president at Ryman, and I think we thought, I don't think he was real happy doing that. I think that wasn't exactly what he wanted to do. And then I'm not sure whose idea it was, whether it was yours or Ryman's, that they might be selling no That was fun. ours. It didn't quite fit with the whole stable magazines they mm-hmm. had. They had rural lifestyle publications. So I guess it was ours. We thought about it. It seemed like we fooled around a long time, you know, with financials and all that kind of stuff before we actually did it. Tell me how you ended up doing it. You went to Mr. Ryman and said, I'm leaving, I want to take no-till farm. Well, I didn't say I was leaving, but I said we'd like to buy two of the magazines, and we bought another one, which was called Farm Building News in that time. This was in the early 80s, and it was tough times in agriculture, and we didn't do very well with Farm Building News, and we were still a partner with them, and we unloaded that in 1989. But we kind of got no-till for practically nothing, and that turned out to be the best thing of all. We paid too much money for the other magazine, but we didn't for no-till. I understand that was a, a bit of a traumatic experience for you with the Real Builder magazine. Yeah, it was tough times. We had trouble making payments, and I was just an editor. Pam had to worry about all the financial stuff, and she would come down to my office and say, we got a problem, and I would say, just leave me alone. I got an article I got to write today that just would make her mad. <laughs> you know what's interesting about that, if I can jump in, is mm-hmm. that this was all happening and we had no idea it was happening at home. That they were really struggling financially and mom and dad didn't show it to any of us mm-hmm. in the house. We didn't have any idea of it. You let me in when I was a sophomore in college that things were really bad. Mm-hmm. And there might be something. I was home for a spring break and mom 
and I were sitting around the kitchen table and that was the first I'd heard of it. But so as bad as the business may have been struggling, we didn't have any idea at home. It didn't change our, our home life. We had a great so, romantic life. Like we would sit and lay in bed at 10 o'clock at night and talk financial statements. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to my next question. Do you think you would have been as successful as you are today without Pam? A lot of the credit for the business goes to her because she's the one that, uh, I was just an editor. She was the brains of the outfit. She made it work, figured out how we were going to do this and how we were going to pay for that. And she didn't get enough credit for this, what we've done in this business. Is that true? I think he gives me more credit than I deserve. I mean, anybody can do accounting. Not too many people can be creative like he is. But there aren't a lot of people who can kick him in the butt to keep him going. <laughs> I'm good at that. Yes, <laughs> I noticed. What, what she was really good at is when I had a dumb idea and she wouldn't give me the money for it, to do it. And I overruled her a couple times and she was right. <laughs> she used to say to me, why do you want to go do this? Why don't you stick to what you know, which was agriculture. Mm -hmm. But you kept looking for other things outside of ag? Oh yeah, I still, I'm still going to start a popcorn newsletter <laughs> one of these days. Yeah. Mike, you mentioned that, that you first got tuned into what was going on in your sophomore year in college, is that mm -hmm. correct? So tell us about your early memories of your folks building this business. In the 70s, the offices were downtown that Dad worked at. Ryman was down on, on Van Buren Street. And I used to go down there a lot of Saturdays, and he would set me up in the art department, or there was one television screen there. So I was kind of around the business and like, saw what he was doing from a, a real distance. But mm -hmm. one day, I, I remember not all that long, I think, before you put the deal together, is filled us in that, hey, we're working on something with myself and my, and my three sisters said we have something exciting going and told us a little bit about it, told us to, to keep it quiet because no one needed to know that. So I had some idea that something was in the works and I remember you had some friends over who were helping you That's right. try to figure out how to get the finances together to, to mm -hmm. buy this. There were some banker friends mm -hmm. and accounting friends as I recall. Yeah, that's right, I'd forgotten about that. But I do remember the day I stepped off the bus. It was, it was March 6, 81. It was the day that all this was incorporated, and Mom greeted me at the door with a glass of champagne. I was in sixth grade, <laughs> and said, our family went into business together today. And that, that, that I remember very vividly. And then Saturday, Dad told me to get a couple friends to go down to Ryman and start hauling boxes back out to Brookfield. What's interesting, you look back, if you pulled that old contract out today, it showed that the maximum interest that we would have to pay was 14%. And you look at that and you think, wow, well, in the early 80s, the interest rates were 21, 22, and 23 percent. Mm -hmm. But we had trouble even making it at the 14 percent. What finally made you decide we're going into business for ourselves? You've already said you've contemplated it for a couple of years mm -hmm. and dug around, looked at all the details. What pushed you to finally do it? Well, probably when Roy, Roy Ryman said, all right, go ahead. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I think... I was in a, you know, it's a sizable publishing company, and I guess I'm kind of a typical farm boy. I like to be my own boss, and it was, it was fine for a while, but then I think what happened is that I was talking earlier about the three and a half years. I think that kicked in, too, and it was time to do something different. So I know the, the other magazine that you bought turned out to 
not work so well. Right. Why don't For, you tell us about that and what you went through to survive that period? Well, being an editor, you'd you think, well, there's going to be more demand for advertising. It's going to go up every year. And when the ag economy got bad, it didn't do that. And I remember our first National Farm Builder Show was in St. Louis. And it was to start on a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock with the trade show being open. And we were in St. Louis, and on Sunday night at 6 o'clock, it started to snow. And there were 24 inches of snow on the ground by the time our show opened. And we should have had maybe 1900 2000 attendees i think we ended up with maybe 1100 or something and there were people i knew that couldn't make the last 10 miles they'd driven 600 miles but in three days they couldn't make the last 10 miles and the hotel was across the street from the convention center and in four days the city never plowed that street it was so bad so what kept you going after all that trauma well, I don't know, we were just in it. I'll tell you, the, the program for the next year's program was the easiest one I've ever done because I had about 80% of the speakers the first year never made it to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So I just used some of them. But that Sunday night, the trade show was open. I went around, put my arm around a number of people and said, you're gonna be on a panel tomorrow. That was a rough start to your tenure as the new publishers of Farm Building News, but that wasn't the trauma. It was the economic trauma that went on from 82 up till mm -hmm, late right. 80s. I think, talk about that for... Well, times were hard. Butts came out, Earl Butts was Secretary of Ag <coughs> and came out and said, let's plant everything fence row to fence row. And we had large supplies of corn and soybeans and wheat and uh, the economy went, really went down and uh, it was tough on farmers. And one of the interesting things is we had a fairly good demand for the grain bin industry, dryers and aerators and conveyors and bins. And we thought about starting a newsletter for grain bin people. Well, one of the smartest things we ever did is we didn't do it because the market kind of went down and it, it wasn't worth doing. But in those days, you could build a horizontal warehouse, it's flat storage for grain. And the government had a program that would pay for the whole building in two and a half, three years. And there were people, we did stories on people who built huge warehouses with the idea of, we're going to put grain in there for two years and then we're going to sell it to a manufacturer. And that's what they did and they made a ton of money. So what kind of subscribers did you have? I mean, the number of subscribers back then. I think there were maybe 22,000. That sounds about right. No-till, we probably had uh, 2,000 or so, maybe not even that many. But they were paid subscribers. No-till at Ryman started out as a magazine six times a year. And we quickly found out that there wasn't enough ad support for it. And so after maybe a year and a half, two years, it got converted to a monthly newsletter. I remember we did a price test at uh, 12 bucks a year, 18 bucks a year, and 24 bucks a year. And the winner was 18. Well, actually the winner was 24, but I didn't have the courage to go that high. So we went from <laughs> 12 to 18. I've heard stories that you had a short-lived attempt at another publisher after the for sale of the business. Can you tell me about that episode? Well, Real, Farm Building News had been renamed Real Builder by that time, and so it ended up up at Krause at Iola. Wisconsin. You had, you were forced to sell. Yeah, we were forced to sell it, and uh, it ended up at uh, Iola at Krause Publications, which had a number of hobby and stamp magazines, and uh, it was a pretty good year after we got out. We got out in May and I, I stayed on with Krause. I was going to edit the magazine and keep doing that. I was getting a salary from them. 
I was still getting the salary from Ryman for the rest of the year as kind of a severance to get out. And then we were making money off no-till. So it was like a three income year and it was pretty good. But I found out Krause, they weren't doing anything wrong. They were fine, they made it work. But they weren't doing it my way. And I couldn't handle the way they were doing it. So I think by September I had bailed out of that and I'd only lasted maybe four months with them. But it goes back to being your own boss. Yeah, well, you also took a hit in salary. What would Pam say about that? Well, at that time, we went to Europe that September for three weeks. And Sue Ramstack, who still works with us today, ran the company for three weeks. We had bought another publication, Farmer's Digest, and I like to tell that we never hired Sue because it, she came with the magazine. Oh, is that right? <laughs> I have a memory of the the day Frank tendered his resignation up at Krause because I, I was home for college. Mm-hmm. I was probably sophomore, junior in college, and he came into my office to share a teachable moment with me and said, "I did something to my employer today that I hope you're, you're not going to do." I said, well, "What? What is it?" And he said, "I quit and walked out of there without any notice. <laughs> it was done on the spot. It just wasn't going to work." What possessed you to buy the American Farrier's Journal? Well, we were looking around for a couple of years of magazines to buy, and we didn't see anything that really fit us that we liked. And then I answered an ad in Folio magazine, for, and it turned out, I didn't know what it was, it turned out to be American Farrier's Journal, and I thought, hmm. I remember on the farm when we had a farrier come out and shoe our Belgian horses, I thought, yeah, we know agriculture, this will fit in. And so um, we, made it, we made an offer on it. And I'd learned a lesson by that time because it's easy for someone to get emotionally excited about something. And I made the decision that time, the accountants and the attorneys had to tell us if we were gonna buy this magazine or not. My vote didn't count. And so we worked it out and uh, we went out there and uh, bought it and hired at least two people right away and have done very well with it. It's been since 1992 and then we started a show 16 years ago, it brings in about a thousand people a year, and we get people from 20, 21 countries every year. Mike, during this whole period, you were working with Frank and Pam. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I had uh, always kind of done a few things around the office. Um, I was writing product lit at an early age and would go on some trips with, with Dad. Through some book projects, I was spending some summers with them. My sisters and I all worked in the business. Did he, did he pay you? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I had, at this niche media event I was at last week, they, for an icebreaker, they had everyone stand up and say what their first job in publishing was. And I said, my first job, I was eight years old, and I was stuffing <laughs> direct mail pieces and envelopes, and for payment, I got two Mountain Dews and a bag of M&M's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. During this period, you were gaining experience in publishing, obviously, and you ultimately went to Wisconsin-Madison to uh, get a degree in journalism. Mm -hmm. Tell me how this early stuff really lit your fire. It was not something I was out seeking, I think. I got the exposure through osmosis from being in the building with them and dinner tables and always loved writing. Probably a gift I got from both of them, including mom are outstanding writers. Mm -hmm. She doesn't consider herself that way, but she could hold a pen with any of the three, the rest of the three of us sitting up here today. 
wanted to, to be a writer. Dad gave me some assignments real early and the, just the byline and telling a story was very attractive. I, I didn't expect to be in this trade media business. I went to journalism school at Madison thinking I might be a sports writer or working for Sports Illustrated or, or something like that. And general economy was really tough when I got out of school. And Dad gave me a very meager amount on an hourly basis because he wasn't going to let me stay there. He said, the plan all along is you're going to have to go learn from someone else. And the funny thing is, he needed help. He had just acquired something and even then said, you're going to go see how the rest of the world works and that's where you're in my history picks up. I remember calling you to talk to you about joining the magazine down in the Chicago area and you didn't return my call right away and I left a message for you and you told me later on you were with your dad driving. You had just acquired another magazine. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I came down and interviewed with you and was pretty excited about that opportunity. Get out on my own, do something really different. Um, it was important for me to do something on my own, not to use dad's contacts to get a job. And we were driving out to Boston area, Worcester, Massachusetts, to pick up the American Farrier's Journal magazine. I was I was there to handle boxes and share in the driving and we talked talked the whole way. And I remember we pulled over and I did did call you and um, you, we connected and talked about the moving to Illinois to join your staff down there and, and that was also a topic of conversation. I was very excited about it but um, bringing stuff back for this other this new chapter which American Farriers Journal really was a new chapter for what this company mm -hmm. um, up until that time it was a, a three-person shop and that provided the resources to do all these other things that came after it. Someday Dave when I'm ticked off at him he was also a photo model for us on some <laughs> covers and I'll pull out some Yankee Doodle Dandy <laughs> pictures of him <laughs> and show everybody. You're so in your peril because there's lots of photos of you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the funny things is he, uh, when he was in school, he worked the summer as an intern with the U.S. Olympic Committee. Mm -hmm. And so I went with him. I, we drove out to Colorado Springs and we made a stop along the way at Orthman, who was, not, who was an advertiser in our farm equipment magazine as his account. And he was so bored he wouldn't get out of the car and he wouldn't let him look around at Orthman. And here it turns out to be an account for him later on. <laughs> I've, I've joked with, with uh, Bill Orthman and John McCoy about that. Yeah, I, was, I was tired. I took a nap while I, in the parking lot. As far as him not getting back to you, too, that was long before the days of cell phones That's when right. it was easy to connect. I think it was a, a phone booth in Erie, Pennsylvania was when it? we connected. But another thing that comes up is... Uh, he talks about having been in the publishing business since he was eight. And he told me a story once about you that he was chomping at the bit to do something or something. And you said to him, slow down, you're a new guy in here, but you got 10 years of experience. <laughs> <laughs> when I came to Lesseter, you had another group of magazines in the sports area. Why don't you tell me how that evolved? Yeah, we were looking for things to buy. And I, I think Michael's the one turned us on to winning hoops. It was a newsletter six times a year, I think, for basketball coaches. And it's interesting because we looked at the financials on this, and in 20 minutes, I knew what it was worth to buy. And we bought it a year later for about that figure. It took us that long to make up our mind to do it. 
We'll get to my interview with Frank, Pam, and Mike in just a second, but first a word about Osmondson Manufacturing. Osmondson has a storied family history of its own dating all the way back to 1903. You can learn more about this unique company by visiting www.osmondson.com. When I joined, it was clear that we were, and we're going to stay, a niche publisher. Why don't you talk about that, why you didn't get into some consumer publications or some other type of publications? Well, we go back to what Pam says, we should be in what we know best, and we should stay in it, and we've been most successful doing that. And the smaller your niche can be, the more success you can have if that niche is big enough to make it work. But I mean, you look at some of the general magazines, consumer magazines, who's got, who've gotten big trouble. They got these tremendous circulations and it just kind of fits everybody. And that's, I mean, and all the industries we're in were the number one book in the industry and several of them were the only book in the industry. And we make a difference in impacting people's lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've been most successful with is launching our own niches like in the ag business. We've got No-Till Farmer, and we've got a magazine that used to be called Farm Catalog, it's now called Farm Innovation, that goes to 60,000 of the highest income people once a year. And then on the dealer side, we have Farm Equipment, which is the magazine for there, but then we launched off that rural lifestyle dealer, and we've done very well. Dave, you run our Ag Equipment Intelligence newsletter, it's done well, and then on the no-till side, we've also started a, uh, a magazine called Strip-Till Farmer a few years ago. And at one time, we had a newsletter called Ridge-Till Hotline that went to Ridge-Tillers. And we did that for four or five years, and no-till was growing all the time, and Ridge-Till wasn't. And, uh, but even now, I mean, Ridge-Till, when we had it, had about three million acres. And now, 20 years later, it's still got about three million acres. It hasn't grown. Mike, another magazine that you started was Precision Farming Dealer. Why don't you talk about the thinking that went into that? A lot of things we built off of here were sired out of farm equipment, which you and I were working on almost from the beginning when we bought it. We were seeing that there were these opportunities to segment out the information. Um, You couldn't do everything in farm equipment that a dealer needed to understand about how to operate their business. You know, there's parts, sales, service, those are all all common things of all dealerships, but we had the rural lifestyle hobby farm opportunity emerge and as you, you'll remember we were talking about you have to approach this customer altogether different than you would a, a full-time production oriented farmer. So we saw an intersection of both informational void and an advertising need. So I think we, we the success we'd had with Rural Lifestyle Dealer had us also thinking that as the precision ag and GPS world really changed things, um, it was an opportunity to, to do a further segmentation and create a, a standalone meeting, standalone publication website that was all about sales and service of precision farming. Let's take one step back in about 2003, you decided to move back to Milwaukee and join Frank and Pam and in their publishing activities. What, what brought that about and how did that reunion go, so to speak? I, I went down to Chicago and working for you at Modern Casting in the foundry business, not knowing what, you know, it was a, it was a job. I needed to do something. I didn't, didn't know where it was going to lead me. And so what may have otherwise turned into 
may have been a two-year stint, three-year stint turned into 12 because you were opening doors for me, getting me exposure and experience that was way too valuable to leave. I mean, that's, that's I talked about it a couple times and or thought it through myself and I'd be foolish to leave this opportunity. I'm learning about how to deal with people. I'm learning about how to write a subject I didn't know about. It was, those were good times. So he was in the foundry business with you. We never told his high school chemistry teacher that he was in the foundry business. It would have probably killed the guy, knowing <laughs> what Michael did in chemistry. But another thing is, after a year or two, we kind of had an informal board of directors. There was Michael and Pam and I, and then the two of them would gang up on me when I had an idea. But what's interesting, because the, maybe for the first three or four years he worked with you, he would call me up and say, Dad, what do you think I should do? And after about three years, he learned so much from you as I would call him up and say, Mike, what do you think I should do? And which is really true, we did that. There was some peer group stuff going on, you know, mm -hmm. some resources th through that. But, you know, things were changing there and I was starting to, I'd had a child, was looking at having more and was thinking about, you know, this would be a good, if I were gonna make a change, this would probably be the right time to do it. And, had been, like Frank just said, I had been exposed to their financials as a kind of a director, very informal, looking it over. Um, so I knew about the business, which I think would have been handy whether I came back or not. But what he called once, with, as he did periodically, and this time I said, I think I'm ready to, ready to talk. And Sandy was game to, to make the move. She was an important part of that, of course. And we came up in uh, September of 03. That reminds me of a story because we lived in Mount Prospect years ago and we'd moved a couple times and Pam wasn't very excited about moving back here but she finally said to me already I'll, I'll do it if you get our old pediatrician back because he was such a great doctor and he wasn't taking any new patients but I called him up and he did take us back since we'd been with him before. We were coming back this this was part of the conversation there was no guarantees to it um, but that was an, an exciting part of coming back here is the opportunity to mm -hmm. have an equity stake someday, if, mm -hmm. if earned. I th think he's telling the truth there. But they had outlined a, a plan to buy into the company, and I went and took it to a lawyer, and he said, don't do it. <laughs> he, he told me, don't do it, and we, I, I said, hey, I'm going to, you know, we'll cool our jets. We'll see how, the, how this goes. Mm -hmm. He didn't see it, and part of it was he didn't understand the deferred income that mm -hmm. is uh, relatable to paid subscription. Another <laughs> interesting thing about that was you accidentally pocket dialed me on your cell phone. By then we had cell phones. So I could hear his conversation with his lawyer. <laughs> you did? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I told you that. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're not as sneaky as you thought you were, huh? <laughs> But he's been good for this company. We've really increased. We worked with Don Henning, a consultant. He told us that farm equipment had been folded and we missed. We bought it and we missed one issue. But this company's really taken off since Michael came back. Interesting enough is uh, after a few years, we made him president and we announced it to the staff. We must have been in our 60s at the time, or 65. We had an editor who said, wow, that's really good because we wondered where this company was gonna go. Mm -hmm. And that had never crossed my mind that our people would be concerned about that. So it was a good decision, huh? Yeah, Come there back. were there were some rough spots. I was wondering whether I'd made a good decision, but mm -hmm. yes, ultimately, but good decision. We got some really good people that came on board that in those early days, we, we couldn't have that 
we, we couldn't afford that, right. the, the, yeah. that level of personnel. This company's really changed and it's changed for the better because whenever we were small, I was an entrepreneur guy. If I wanted to do something, I could get her blessing, we would just do it. And the company's big enough now and it's become a managerial company, which it really needed to be. But one of my biggest accomplishments in this whole business is when we started Strip-Till Farmer. Because when the idea first came up, I wanted to start it the next day. And it took us about a year, and it was much better than it would have been if we started the next day. But my fear was somebody else is gonna do this, mm -hmm. and we won't get to do it. But it worked out well, but we started thinking through things. And I think thinking through things is not one of my strengths. <laughs> <laughs> well, entrepreneurs, they, they just want to move. Right. Yeah. You know, you think about it later, get it done, and, and I, get it moving. Right. I was telling somebody this a week or so ago. I remember in the early days where if we had a problem with selling ads on an issue, we'd come in in the morning at 8 o'clock and we'd get something together and we'd get it laid out and we'd even mail it that day. You had to mail things in those days. And we'd do it. And we can still do that in this company today, but we need a week. <laughs> That's something that, Dave, you, you and I have both written a lot about succession planning right. in the farm equipment space. And that, that's a, a theme that I've seen come up, I imagine you have too, that often the successor generation and the entrepreneur couldn't switch spots mm -hmm. and make it work. Right. You know, right. The entrepreneur can't, it's not easier, it's, it's foreign to be in that management role and, and right. those often the managerials can't do the entrepreneur. Right. It, it's it's but, different. But Frank has done it amazingly well. I know it wasn't always easy for him because he would talk to me sometimes, and uh, but he trusted in you. So how has the succession planning gone? I know, like I said, Frank would talk to me sometimes a little bit. Oh, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure. Tell me, tell me within the family how it went. Well, we came up with a plan where he gets stock over the years. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm probably one of these guys that will work forever. I try to take Fridays off and Wednesday afternoons, and I don't always get done, but pretty much I do. But by going to work is what I keep my marriage going with because I'm not home all the time. Mm -hmm. Pam is one of these people who said to me, I'll make you supper, but I'm not making you lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Pam might have the the best perspective on how this thing yeah. worked. She probably heard from her her son and her husband <laughs> yeah. during this time. And she doesn't, and like me, she doesn't always think the son is wrong. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm sort of, I, I'm, I think I'm neutral because I really love and respect both of them. Mm -hmm. So I can see sometimes they, they each can be wrong on different things. What? According to my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and have you had to uh, serve as a referee? Not, not as a referee, but sometimes I've had to um, explain things to Frank. <laughs> <laughs> a good way to put it. That one, of, one of the things is, is I will unwind on her and then I get it out of my system. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what a good partner does for you. Let you let you vent and doesn't take it personally. In in 2004, you bought farm equipment, and that kind of lit the fuse. And you've grown like crazy. I think when I started here, we had 14 or 15 people, and now we're almost 40. Mm -hmm. That was key. That that acquisition, I would say, 
is, was key to the succession planning working. Because my first year here, it was almost a full year, I was the boss's kid. I had an executive vice president title. People were not real eager to change. I felt that I had had enough experience that I wasn't didn't want to just be the meek guy that goes along, plays along. I mm -hmm. saw things wanted to change, wanted to get at it. And um, I was sort of lost in there because there was resistance change all over the place. Um, we were looking for something by and it was going slow going. And then farm equipment came and as Frank said, we kind of, we almost didn't take it. We, we, we shooed down away a couple times. He kept coming back and saying, I'm going to make you guys listen to the mm -hmm. opportunity here. But part of that deal was Frank said, you're running it. If you, if you believe in this and want to do it, ultimately it's your call because you're going to run the thing. Mm -hmm. He funded it. But I think having, having something that I could put my mark in and, and do things the way that I thought they needed to be done was, was critical because without that, I'm not sure it would have ended, ended up in the same place. I tell people one of the reasons we've had success on farm equipment is I kept my hands off it. <laughs> One of the funny parts of the story is after a week or two after we bought farm equipment, I got a call from the guy in London, and they owned implement and tractor, and he wanted to sell me implement mm -hmm. and tractor, and I couldn't see paying twice as much money for implement and tractor for a magazine. It was wasn't even half as good as the other one. And I always thought in hindsight we should have done it, but then we ended up buying it a couple years ago anyway. But mm -hmm. we could have bought it when we started with farm equipment. So you came in April of 05, um, was it? May of 2005, yeah. We had made some changes that the industry appreciated, but it was not profitable. We were, we were not profitable till shortly after you came. I think that, that June showcase issue would have been the first time we got in the black. Where's Lesseter Media going from here? Well, ask the president. <laughs> Mr. President. Where we're going from here is we, we, we want to get bigger. We don't have dreams or designs on being an enormous operation, but we want to keep applying that editorial formula that, that Frank put in place and you and I have tried to, to live up to and our, our other team here. We think there's uh, information in certain markets is, is becoming more important, not less important. Mm -hmm. And the channel in which it's put out there doesn't matter. We're going to have our, our foot and fingertips, whether it's digital print, events, data, whatever's coming next out there. We would like to do some things to grow our people, give it more opportunity for our people. And we're looking for search. Uh, we're searching for acquisition opportunities where we could make a difference in the market that we serve, mm -hmm. in the business to business realm or the niche agricultural realm. So but we have a very good team. We're gonna have some uh, big shoes to fill, but I'm excited about the future. Like all the stories we've done about successful dealers, almost to a, a person, they have said it's because we had good people. And today I think we have a fabulous staff. And keeping it going and building it, I think is gonna be one of your biggest challenges. But it's like what we're doing today, we're making this podcast. We weren't doing these three years ago and now we're big time into this. We've got a guy who spends 100% of his time doing this for us, Joe. Yep. Well, thank you. Loved visiting with you guys and really appreciate everything you've done. And I want to throw in a personal note. You guys have really made my life a whole lot better having welcomed me into your family 
and brought Paul and I into all of your family activities. That, that meant a lot, and quite honestly, that's what kept me working here. Sure, that's great. Yeah. I want to thank Frank, Pam, and Mike for sharing their How We Did It success story with us today. I also want to thank Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production of these timeless interviews. Please visit them at www.osmondson.com. I also would like to thank Jeff Lazeski for his help in filming this episode, as well as Joe Kinsley for his great editing of this entire series. This is Dave Kanicki with Farm Equipment and Ag Equipment Intelligence, and I want to thank you for making time for these personal success stories and their place in the great history of the farm equipment booth. Make it a great week.